Okay, we're in the study in the book of Titus and really come to a place when I open the book, it's like, I want to go here first. And it's because it really is the fulcrum of the book. It's how it all holds together. It sort of begins like this. It's like, you know, as, as I was praying at the prayer of confession, I don't know about you, but I get to those places when I don't feel hopeful about humankind. I don't feel hopeful about where we're going and what our future is. There's a story that's about 100 years old now of of a movement that was beginning in Eastern Europe, which really the whole world was sort of watching, saying, hey, we think this could be it. This could be another way of living that human beings have discovered that's going to open the way to life. It was Russia. It was 1919, and three journalists from the United States went there. They wanted to see it for themselves. And it was amazing. They saw people of different ethnic backgrounds coming together. They saw people who were common people that had the dignity of work. They saw people united across what had seemed to be permanent to them, these class structures that had for so long divided people. It was sort of like in an embryonic form, the forming of the Soviet Union. One of those reporters was this guy who was from California, and he saw what was happening. I mean, his eyes were open to this. To him, it was amazing. And when he came back to the United States, he was asked, what did you think about what you saw? And he described this amazing community, this sense of community that he saw. And he said this, he said, I have seen the future, and it works. Now, today we know that was a hollow vision of the future. We've learned how harmful communism became and how harmful it still is today. And you might wonder, okay, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, I think when the gospel came on the scene, there were a lot of people that said that. They said, hey, this is something we've never seen before. And actually, it's being described in this letter how how the generations are going to serve each other. And a community will come together where people live as really people have never lived before. And it sort of leads us to ask, well, I mean, how how is this going to be possible? How will we have a community that's talked about In this letter, because it's beautiful, you see young, older people caring about younger people and investing in their lives. You see lives given to faithfulness and service and doing what is good to the benefit of everybody else. And you begin to say, wow, this is the community, this is the world that I want to be a part of. But you ask the question, what in the, how is this going to work? How could this possibly happen in our world? Years ago, a guy was given a, gave a Bible to a friend of his who, who'd never read the New Testament, and he was reading all this stuff about the promises of God and about Jesus and, and all of these wonderful things. And as he did, like I sort of do this, I write all kinds of notes in the margins. He went down through, and there were all kinds of like abbreviations in the margins. And his buddy who had given him the Bible, when he looked at it, he noticed this abbreviations keep, kept appearing over and over again. These, these letters, YBH, YBH. There were lots of other things there too, but there were especially these letters. So he went to his friend and he said, what do those letters mean? He said, they mean yes, but how? Yeah, I want this to happen. This is the way I'd like our world to be, 
But how is this actually going to be possible? And that's what our text answers today. Would you pray together with me? Father, we need to live in your word. We need to know, Lord, because we want to know. How, how is this world that you created us to live in, Lord, that's why we long for it so much? How can it be possible? And how can it start right here in our congregation? How can this start in our individual lives? Where does it come from? Because, Lord, we wonder how it could happen, how it could be possible. And so I pray, Lord, you will more than enlighten us by your truth. You'll lead us by your spirit. And you will change and transform our very hearts. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Peter said this, he said, His, God's divine power has given us everything we need for, through a godly life, for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So I'm going to give you the answer right at the start, right? This is where we go. God gives us everything we need. This is absolutely true. But I don't think we believe this. We don't act like it's true. In a book I read recently, the author ends with the story of a, a young girl on a college campus. Her name is Kara. Kara's really struggling in her life. She's not a Christ follower. She's struggling and she feels guilty about some things that she's done. She feels the weight of, of some mistakes, some huge mistakes she's made. She's abused alcohol as well. And, and she feels just overwhelmed by life. Wait, really everything depends on her, and she is not happy. And then she is invited to a Christian fellowship. She's a little leery of Christians. She knows about some, but she's never been to a group like this before. She's invited to that campus fellowship, and she is surprised to find, well, Christians that she meets there are kind-hearted. And they're really pretty funny. And they're generous, too. And she is welcomed wholeheartedly into their group. And there she learns about this God. She wasn't sure there was a God that existed, but about this God who made all things that actually cares for her and understands the things she struggles with every day. You see, God knows her and sees her and loves her. I mean, warts and all, that's what she's told and this beautiful thing begins to happen in her life. She, she wants this. She wants a relationship with Jesus. So she says yes to Jesus. And at first, this community is warm and full of laughter. They talk about deep and meaningful things when so many other people, they're talking about nothing almost. They find ways to serve. They live in hope. Then something happens. The more she gets involved the more the pressure she begins to feel. And it's really subtle. It's not overt. She always has to be growing. 
She has to be doing more. She needs more devotion and, and there's more accountability. And before she knows it, she feels like she's been given this new ladder that she has to climb. But this time, it's like the very approval of God hangs in the balance. And the reality is she begins to feel this pressure until she, she just can't take it anymore. And she decides she's going to break up with Jesus. Life is hard enough to have another layer of pressure added to the mix. She felt like she was burning out. She just couldn't do it. Let me tell you, this is how many people experience faith. They experience more to do, like religious practices, and more you feel like you can't do. Indeed, this was the heart of Judaism. It was do that, do that. You should do this, you shouldn't do that. And literally, you felt like you were being shoulded to death. This is the course of religion, right? And it's why it, it, it leads to the same things, this, this sense of not enoughness that we already feel enough of, this feeling that somehow I failed, this definite feeling that it depends on you. So I want to begin today by discrediting this sort of religion, right? The Apostle Paul, he says it like this, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that is the right living, is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul says, look, from top to bottom, beginning to end, this right living actually comes freely to, to us from God. And we, we only receive it and live in it by faith. Okay, it's not just the way we enter into fellowship with God. It's not like the ABCs of being a Christ follower. It is the A to Z. It takes in everything from beginning to end. You see, this is the engine of our new life, our new community. And so that's what I want to look at with you today. Why we need grace, what it is, and how it works. Now let me just tell you up front, I find it very strange that we have to get to the middle of this letter to hear this from the Apostle Paul. I would think that right up front he would start here, but I think what's happened is he's writing this church planter named Titus, and he's like, he's just firing that letter. There's so much to be done. And I think as he gets into the middle of this, he's like, oh my goodness, we've got to talk about this because this is how it all happens. Because think about Titus. He's got to find people of character. He's got to find people who can be leaders, who are going to lead this new church. Where are these people going to come from? What is going to shape them to this sort of person? And so he's given this blueprint, a beautiful community, but Paul has never told him how they could live it and how we can live it. And then he says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, nothing could be more shocking for a Jewish rabbi to say. Let me tell you why. Paul, his whole life has been nurtured in the law, the law of God. And by the way, the law gave the framework for everything in your life. How to wash your hands before meals, how much water you actually had to use, what to do if you saw mildew in your home, how you were to go to the bathroom if you were at war. I'm not making this stuff up, right? The kind of clothing that you were permitted to wear and the kind that was not lawful. The kind of jobs that you should do and the ones you should turn away. You get the idea 
Everything was covered there. It's all there. And so any rabbi like Paul, worth his salt, would say this. Here is the law. Just go and do it, you guys. Get your life together. Be a good person. Don't do anything stupid. Come on. Just go and do it. And in many ways, this is what people believe religion is all about. And even Christianity. But the problem is this. The law is impossible. So Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. And that word is really beautiful. If that's your Bible, you may want to write in there, that word appeared is the word epiphany. It just shows up. It's a surprise. We didn't ask for it. We didn't do anything to receive it. It's just given like that. It shows up. Paul says, it is for everyone. This doesn't mean everybody's going to come to faith in Christ, but that God wants his world to be filled with this grace. It's a path to life and freedom for everybody. So maybe you're saying, well, why is this the only way? Why does, why does it have to be of grace? Why do we need grace? Uh, I like what Pastor uh, David Zoll said. He, he uses three ideas to sort of explain our need. He says, first, all of us have limitations. We are bound by time and history and biology. We're, we're finite human beings. That means we only have so much energy, so much capacity. I think I spent like 20 years of my life believing that my energy would never run out. I don't know, maybe you spend some years too. Um, and, and we just think we don't have any limitations, right? We can go and do anything. But the reality is we are, all are bound within limits of what we can do, how much we can carry out. I love the way this is communicated in the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. It came out years ago. It's one of those beautiful on a deserted island stories. But the story doesn't begin with him on the island. It begins with him. He works for FedEx at a FedEx office in Russia where he's training the staff of how they need to live by the clock. That they're under the gun every day and they've got to be efficient. They've got to get it done. And then he shows how many minutes they have before that truck is going to leave. And he says, look, you guys have to have it loaded before that time runs out. This is how he explains it to his employees. He says, time rules over us without mercy. Not caring if we're healthy or ill, hungry or drunk, Russian, American, beings from Mars. It's like a fire. It could either destroy us or keep us warm. That's why every FedEx office has a clock. We live or die by the clock. We never turn our backs on it. And we never ever allow ourselves the sin of losing track of time. That's how much time we have before this pulsating, accursed, relentless taskmaster tries to put us out of business. It's a taskmaster. You know, this is the law. It was always hanging over you saying, hey, why did you do that? And you know that's wrong. And why don't you get yourself together? What's wrong with you? You know that you shouldn't be doing that. And you couldn't escape this stuff. And this is what a people taught themselves to live by. They were in it every day. And yet here in the story of Hanks, he finds himself on a deserted island. He has no control of time or his life. He can't do a thing about it. You see, we live in a world beyond our control, and we have immense limitations. Let me just break the news here. You have to sleep at night, you guys. It's necessary. 
Like I said, I lived in defiance of that for a decade of my life, I think. I know we'd like to change that, but we can't. Let me also tell you, there's only so much stress you can handle. There's only so much. You're not unlimited. There are only so many things you can get done. You have to choose, and that means you cannot choose everything. Now, maybe you don't accept those limits. I met somebody who somebody close to them died, and they became depressed, and they thought, well, this shouldn't happen to them. We get depressed when people we love die. We grieve and hurt. We can't just carry on like it didn't happen. We somehow think we shouldn't be limited like that, but we are. Let me tell you, you're limited. You need grace every day. Here's the Apostle Paul. He got to this place himself. He said, we are under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure that we, so that we despaired of life itself. He said, look, I got to a place where I wasn't even sure I wanted to keep living. He says, We've, we felt re, we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who could even raise the dead. He said, you know, I thought I could handle my life, but I couldn't do it. And this is where we live. This is why grace appeared. But there's a second factor. And this one I see in myself so much. I hope you will see it too. It's doubleness. Doubleness. We desire one thing, but we do another. We feel one way, and then our feelings change the next moment. Our wills are weak, but our desires are strong. And sometimes we feel like there's more than one person living inside of us. One with good motives, but another not holding it together at all. I like the way Brennan Manning, he was a priest, explained this. This is what he said. He said, when I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Come on. And you know why he says that? He struggled with alcohol his whole life. He was to speak at his mother's funeral, but the night before he got drunk and he didn't even make it. And he said, this was the person that no matter what I did in my life, my mom supported me and she loved me. And he said, I know this. This is where I live. Paul said like this. He says, I tell myself not to do stuff, and I find that I keep doing it. And what I try to do that's good, I cannot pull it off. No one has the willpower to pull it all together in any lasting way. In the end of that chapter where Paul talks about his own doubleness, this is what he cries out. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, get honest with yourself and you will, we will, all of us see, we cannot be the very people we desire to be, we want to be, the people we should be. And if you add to all of that one other factor, and that's this, I don't like to look at this either, self-centeredness, throw that into the mix. We're constantly veering our lives in direction of ourselves. Often what we want and do comes at the cost of other people. And this self-centeredness, it blocks empathy and cooperation 
and love. We are constantly using people to feel good about ourselves. We're seeking to control those situations to our own advantage. Here's author Zadie Smith. I think the hardest thing for anyone is, is, is accepting that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things to make yourself feel better, or things to get over, or things to get under. Just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are. And it's so difficult that basically only one person that ever did it was Christ. And the rest of us are very, very far behind. I mean, you will see me in the dust back there somewhere behind Jesus. And when I think of my doubleness, my limitations, my self-centeredness, this is what I say. Hey, I have seen the future and it does not work. It will not work. I need help. The very life I want to live, I cannot live. The very community that I want us to be, it cannot happen. And so this is why Paul, in the middle of this letter, says, look, God has sent his grace. It has appeared, and it provides a completely new and different way. Now, let me tell you, I know there are a lot of people that reject this truth, that it has to be given by God that we cannot bring it about. I remember an interview, it was years ago, I was watching this guy, it was a swimmer, so the swimmers were always my heroes. That's Michael Phelps, and he has 23 gold medals around his neck. He should be like, ugh, struggling to hold them up, but he's not. And after one of those races, one of the last races he won, he got out of the pool, and the reporters were waiting to talk to him. You gotta love this scene, right? And, um, and the reporter came over and he's like, how have you been able to do this? How have you pulled this off? And this is what he said. He said, if you want something enough, you can do anything. No limitations, right? I mean, that's what we believe in our culture. And it made me ask afterwards, um, did these other athletes just not want it? I think they really did. Is it just because my willpower is too weak? Look at Phelps. He is, he's a physical freak. My body isn't built like that, right? He can do that. I can, there's a lot of stuff I can't do. By the way, he cannot be a jockey on a horse. He just cannot do it. God didn't make him like that. You see, it's biology. You cannot have or do whatever you want. And this is why Paul is like, hey, you guys, you've got to know that this is all of grace. You've got to learn what grace is. You've got to learn how to receive it. And even more, we have to learn how to live in it together. So God doesn't say, hey, go figure this out. He equips us. He doesn't tell us, hey, increase your willpower. He doesn't take away our limitations, right? He, he creates a completely new framework for your life. Or you could say, he recreates us from top to bottom. Here's Paul elsewhere. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what is grace and how does it work? Well, first, God, grace is God's favor toward you. It's unconditional love. It's his determination to love you no matter how you are doing or what you have done. Grace is God loving you when you're unlovable. Grace is God providing those things that we don't have. 
Okay, it is God entering in and saying, okay, I will provide the life that you long for. I've been impacted over the years by this guy. His name is Chad Bird. He's one of those lives that seem like success to success. And he was, you didn't think he could lose. He was so successful, gifted writer and teacher. And after graduate school, he was hired up to be one of the professors. He was such a standout student. He had the perfect life, amazing marriage and beautiful children, great teaching job. He was set, admired and successful until the limitations got him. You could call it pride. He lost his marriage. He lost the respect of his children. They didn't even want to look at him and his career and reputation and his future. And he became a truck driver. He went to being a truck driver. And he actually had the night shift to drive called the graveyard shift. He said, oh, this is a good metaphor for my life right now. This is where I live. But like the prodigal son, the father came running after him and pursued him. And this is what Chad said. He said, every step of the way, we are accompanied by God who in Jesus Christ will never unlove us, unadopt us, unredeem us. No matter what we have done, no matter what fallout from our actions have decimated our lives, no matter how much spite or malice, grief or pain, bitterness or despair we feel, we have a God who is on our side. That's grace. And Paul says when that grace appears in your life, and actually you don't just have it as an idea, likely we've all heard of grace, right? But when you begin to internalize it, your whole life will begin to change. And the reason is because the motivational structure of your life, your heart, driving all of the things you're doing, is changed by God in his love. It is the love of God at work in your life. This means that everything doesn't depend on you. Jesus stepped in and has given you his perfect record. And he's given you a place that can never be taken away from you, can never be in jeopardy. And it is this love in Christ that begins to open this way for a new life for us. I think we do trust our, our willpower. And we haven't learned how to trust in the power of love. This is what it says. It, that's grace, becomes our teacher it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So that's what this love does. It begins to train our hearts. And it can't be forced. It all comes through Jesus. And this is how we can say a profound no to all that stuff, right, that we couldn't do before. Again, it's not because of growing willpower, and by the way, that's what godliness is. It's living as God created us to live in the beginning. Not just through the impulses that the world throws at us. And by the way, I need to say this. Our world is not like the world of the Jewish people. They would shoot you to death. There were rules and laws. And that's sort of a taboo for us today. But I think we're under as much or more pressure than they were because we live in a can world, and in a can world, all the choices are yours, and that means all of the outcomes you're responsible for. You have to make and build your own life, and so you're worried about every day, did I make the right choice, did I choose the right thing, or am I in the place where I should be? You see, because it all rests on you. And so we're trying to navigate all of this, and we're just so exhausted from this 
Because we're always second-guessing ourselves. And in the midst of this, again, we believe we've made a wrong turn. Or we've missed out on what our lives may be what they should be. And we are being driven along by impulses to have things. Or to go places. Or to have experiences. And And this has the power to seize us and exploit us. And I think of it like this. We are constantly being stimulated for other people's purposes. They get money for those clicks, right? Or those things that I view when it may not be good for me. And this leaves us anxious and spent and depressed. And you know what? Even with all of that, we feel bored. What can free us from that? Only grace can. You see, God's love breaks this spell that the culture has on this. It dials out the brutal operating system of of comparison and and competition. And we want to be our best, not to prove anything, but because of God's kindness. He's loved us. We're not looking to fill a void in our lives because it's already been filled by Jesus. We can focus on what is right and true because we're now secure in the love of God. We're not hankering after something that we don't have. You see, and that's enough for us. And this is how our new life comes. Here's Chad Bird again. He said, life is all about losing our flawed and egocentric identities in a co-death with Christ and being raised to newness of life in his resurrection. Isn't that beautiful? That you're as alive as the raised up Jesus. And in the end, we find ourselves focused on Jesus himself. By the way, discipleship is focus. It's attention. And the reason is we we become like what we focus our lives on. Just like you turn a ship and you turn it in the direction of, you know, what's in front and that's where you're going to go. And so this is what happens. And actually, Scripture says the more we focus our attention on Jesus, we become transformed to be like him. You see, we're not being told by Paul what to do here to make ourselves better people. We're being told how grace leads us there. God's love does that. It teaches us. And then he ends like this. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. I love that. His very own, eager to do what is good. You see, because we're looking to Jesus, of course that's our hope, the fullness of this kingdom. We're anticipating it. And it's why we live in this kingdom right now. And by the way, that's where this godliness comes from, looking to Jesus. It's not because we've refined our impulse control, but because our gaze is on Jesus. And then I find myself saying something like this. I've, I've seen the future. And it works. Not because I make it so, but because I can rest in grace. Jesus bringing life. This is why we're eager to follow him. A few years back, I was reading a wonderful uh, biography of Johnny Cash. Or if you like him, interesting character. One of my favorite stories from his life is something that happened one day when he was with his wife, June, and their son, and they were driving through the city of New York. They're driving, I mean, he's not from New York, he's from the South, right? But they're driving through New York, and as they're driving through the city, this big rock comes and smashes the window and comes into the car. It's been thrown by somebody, and glass 
he can see splashes onto his wife, June. And he halts the car right away. He gets out of the car. He grabs that rock from inside the car. He wants to find the man who has thrown that rock. And he finds him alongside of the road. He goes to him. He says, is this your rock? And the guy there, he was like, I don't know if he was in a stupor because of drugs or alcohol, but he, he mumbled. He couldn't even put words together. And Johnny Cash is like, well, if this is your rock, you, you need to put it, take it and put it where it belongs. Take it back. And then he went back to the car to see how June was doing and sat in the car for just a moment. By the way, his son is watching all of this. And then finally he takes her by the hand and he leads her out of the car. And his son wonders what's going to happen because they were all so upset. June wasn't hurt, but she was shaken up for sure. And this is what their, his son says. My, father, my mother and father get out of the car and walked over to this man. I saw my father bend down on one knee and then my mother with him and they prayed. The man closed his eyes and he began to cry. I mean, he thought his dad was gonna punch this guy. But instead he went over and knelt beside him and now this guy who probably drugs, alcohol, he's weeping as he sees this couple on their knees praying for him, this amazing scene, and their son watching. You're like, why, did, why in the world did this happen? How, how could he do this in this moment? I mean, who wouldn't be angry and after the person who did this? See, Cash knew he was saved by grace, and there was a day when he was the guy on the side of the road. And it was the love of God in his life that had begun to transform him. I mean, it had become, what do you say he... He really internalized this truth. And when he saw this man, what did he do? And as I read the story, I thought, what happens in a community when the grace of God actually gets to that place in our hearts? How does it transform the way we relate to each other? How, how we treat each other? How we live together? How, how we serve each other? And Paul is saying, look, this is the only place this comes from. This is why the Apostle John said we, we love because he, he first loved us. Because I've been there and I, I know my own brokenness. I know my need of grace. How am I not going to love this other person? You see, what you need to realize is that young woman at college, this isn't a call to do more, to do the law, because that doesn't work. This is a call to learn to live in this love that God has given you freely and that you come to enjoy by faith. It's not trying to do harder, but looking to Jesus. Because there are no people on earth that can pull this off. Would you pray together with me? Lord, it really is true. We see new leaders and our hearts rise thinking maybe things will be different this time. But they're not because we're not different. But we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus... Something can happen to us that is so transformative that the strategies we were using in our lives to fill ourselves up and to, to deal with the hurts that we've lived with are met and they begin to be resolved in him. And so I pray, Lord, as a people, we would learn this, that as we hear and see your love for us, our own hearts would be softened. Because, Lord, you know how easy it is for my heart to become hard. And, Father, so help me to see that when I see the person on the side of the road or the person next to me in the pew 
to remember how I've been loved by you. Teach me this way of love, Lord. And I pray, Father, you'd help us to give our attention, to turn our focus to Jesus, that by looking on him, we might become more and more like him. And Lord, this might be the kind of beautiful community that is so because it's filled with his presence. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.